Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is New York Times bestselling author David Shields. He's also recently produced, written, and directed a documentary film called Marshawn Lynch, A History. It's a film that explores the silence that nonconformist NFL star Marshawn Lynch deploys as a form of resistance, culling more than 700 video clips and placing them in dramatic, rapid, and radical juxtaposition. This film is a powerful political parable about the American media sports complex and its deep complicity with racial oppression. It's an amazing film, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you David Shields. David, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thanks a lot, Scott. It's great to chat. This is like our third conversation, and two of them have been in New York. Uh, the first one, I think, was remotely. You were in Seattle, right? And I was in Philadelphia. But this is the second one we've done in New York. And this one, we're at the beautiful Allen Hotel looking at <laughs> lo- the Lower East Side. This is, uh, I mean, we're not getting paid. For, I'm not getting paid for this, but I would, anybody coming <laughs> to the Lower East Side, this is a gorgeous place I know. to stay. Shout I mean, out, Allen Hotel. I know what you mean like it's... um. Really, I know it's low price. They're super friendly. I know you mean we should get a little sponsor. It's amazing. We have to take a selfie work. I know, and because it's so. I mean, if this is, I mean, it's so freaking Paris because it's we on a little balcony, but it's super. Uh, it's inspired. Desiccated. It just it's a wonderful mix of ugly and beauty, as all you know, all cities are. And um, I know it's just pretty cool. I don't know if it's the ambient. Noise. Now, the first one, what did we do, Scott? Did we do Reality Hunger first? No, we talked about, we've never talked about that book yet. We talked about the Trump book, and then we talked about the Trouble with Men book. And no, but the first one, wasn't that Reality Hunger no. in Seattle? No. Oh, you're right. It was the Trump book. That was the, that's where I discovered you. Oh, and uh, then Trouble with Men was in New York. In New York. And then here's our third here's one, our which third. is sort of Lynch slash Chesterton. I never knew you made films. I didn't either. This is my new, this is my first movie. I mean, I did it. I don't know if you ever saw Scott, that film, which I co-wrote and co-star in called, I think you're totally wrong. A quarrel. No. James Franco directed it. And I play myself and my co-author, Caleb Powell. How did you meet Franco? He was my student at Warren Wilson College in an MFA low residency program in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. When was that? Six, eight years ago. Oh, so he was Franco at that point. He was a well-known actor. You know, he had appeared in Spider-Man, and you know, he was a, a movie star. How, how was that in class? I mean, w- was that awkward for you? I mean, were you just like, is it? Do you just think, all right, he's just like another student? Because he's not just like another student. But it was fascinating. Like he was, he. We have a mutual friend in Matthew Spector, who's um, a writer and a screenwriter, and he's part of part of Hollywood royalty in a certain way through his family and so somehow Franco and I just connected well in the sense that I mean it was a cool moment I gave a read I don't know if you know my book the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead I, uh, I have not you read may that have, book but yet. you know not you you won't be quizzed or anything but you know that basically the answer is always C it is <laughs> well this book the answer is definitely D death death but um but um 
you know, Franco was very generous. Like he, you know, he kind of gave a gave me a one man standing ovation when when you know a movie star gives your your reading a one man standing ovation. You go, I like that guy. <laughs> you know, you know. And so Franco, to me, he and I share or shared. You know, a lot of things. We're interested in nakedness, vulnerability, confession, rawness, breaking the fourth wall, cringe, cringeworthy stuff. You know, and I, I don't. I don't mean to speak for him, but anyway, he and I ended up doing this film together, which I really like. I'll, I'll send you the Vimeo if you're I, 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 I would. But I, it, you know, yeah, it's available on Amazon or something. So what's your first conversation with him like as your student? Like, hi. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what's the – I mean, because that – I would think breaking the ice because it's weird because you're the teacher and he's yeah. the student and yet he's this celebrity. And, right. And, and yet also I'm sure – is a creative peer too. Like there's all these strange power dynamics. What's the first conversation? How does it go? You're late, Mr. Franco. Please sit down. Really? No, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, like it was more just, you know, I mean, he, I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, he was, you know, he's a young, a young man. He's, you know, very handsome, you know, boys and girls crush out on him. You know, I'm his professor. I'm, you know, 20 plus years older than he is, you know. And, you know, I was fascinated by the dynamic of it all, whereby, you know, it was in this tiny town of Swannanoa, North Carolina, just just outside of Asheville. And that, you know, there would be, you know, the word had gone out, you know, James Franco is here, you know, this for, and so that I would, I, this thing that I'll never forget is I was talking to him, just like you and I are talking here, Scott, you know, and I was talking to him in the cafeteria. I was just telling him what was strong or weak about something that he was writing. I was so aware that behind me was this huge phalanx of about 70 women, you know, and they were just, you know, they were clearly drawn toward my magnetism, you know, and I just had never, I mean, it's like, and then, so I sort of asked him, I just said, and I remember this one woman came up to him and just sort of gave him this look that of, you know, genuflection, you know, I'm like, I just sort of said, you know, what's that like? That's not the way I go through my life in which women are just, you know, throwing themselves at you. I just said, like, I, I wasn't necessarily jealous. I was just like, what's that like? That's interesting to me. Like, I don't, I'm just, I'm a total anthropologist. Like, what's that like? And he just said, I you know, he just sort of deflected. But, you know, that we became friends and colleagues and collaborators. It's so interesting to deflect it because it, it's so hard to answer it. Because what's how, the answer? The, yeah, I mean, it's how do you of, answer that? Like, the answer is, you know, I've been a movie star since I was 17 and I don't know anything else that's different. But, um, you know, anyway, it's not a bad segue in the sense that the progenitor of this film that I have done, well, first of all, that Franco and I, he said, you know, do you have anything that you are working on? At the time, Franco was giving himself a 10-year apprenticeship as you know, he basically took a pass on being a total movie star. He said, you know, I could become that person. To me, from age 30 to 40, he basically said, I'm going to go to a bunch of schools, you know, Yale, Columbia, RISD, Warren Wilson, a bunch of different schools. And he basically taught himself how to become a director. He, you know, directed like innumerable small movies, you know, which I think was kind of brilliant. Some of them work, some of them don't, as for any person. But he said, you know, do you have any small thing? I, I sent him a draft, uh, a late draft of I Think You're Totally Wrong, a quarrel, which is a debate between me and my former student about the relationship between life and art. And, you know, he thinks, I, I think he's wasted his life because he has not created the art he wanted to. He thinks I've wasted my life because I've overcommitted to art. And so... The, the book is us debating that. So I sent this, uh, 
the book to Franco and he said, this is a film script. I go, yeah. He goes, oh, we're shooting it. And I, he's, I, I said, well, I assume, you know, George Clooney will play me. Absolutely. That's I mean, just my what God. I was thinking. And so every, it's like Clooney and you, like where separated at birth. And then he said, no, you'll be playing yourself and Caleb, your co-author will be playing him. I'm like, what? You know, I was nervous, but I think we got, had beginner's luck on it. I think the movie actually works. I think, you know, that we're so nervous. It's hilarious. And it's a good movie, I think. And I, I, that's next on my I'll date say, night with my yeah, wife. I'm curious what you think. And then basically, Franco and I tried to make a film of Black Planet. This book I wrote called Black Planet, Facing Race During an NBA Season, where 20 years ago I'd written a book, which I kept a journal about white men projecting their fears and fantasies onto black men's bodies through the framework of professional sports. Franco wanted to make a movie of it. He shot a monologue of me talking about it. He shot uh, a dialogue between me and Keegan-Michael Key talking about the book. If you know, you know, Key from, you know, Key and Peele. Did neither totally work to our surprise. Franco said, you know, I'm out. You know, you, I'm not doing these indie things anymore right now. And he just said, I'll send the, the footage back to you. You can do whatever you want. At that point, I realized that material was sort of dead for me. And then that we transitioned, it, I and some friends, into like, hey, let's explore the same themes, race, sports, media, iconography, um, deconstruction of American media discourse through a contemporary person, Marshawn Lynch. You know, And so basically, Totally Wrong became Black Planet, became the Lynch film, if you follow. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> now you are... You live in Seattle and LA now, yeah. And LA, kind okay. Of, you kind of flip between. Yeah, a little, just because I'm getting into f to film. You know what's called Smollywood. Like it's not like I'm not writing scripts for Universal. I'm just really in love with indie docs right now. You know. Well, and I also there's a future for that too because I think because with streaming and stuff like people don't go to the movies that much anymore. You go to see Iron Man 686 or whatever, or and some that's eye cocaine. I mean, that's for kids. Right. Yeah. You, you go, and even if you're an adult, you go for an eye cocaine, just, you know, eat, eat so much popcorn, eat an angioplasty, but you don't, I mean, cause most of us have a superior watching experience in our own houses. Right. So the, so oftentimes it's going to be indie films that people either go to an artsy theater or stream. Right. So, I mean, totally. it's, it's sort of a, I know. It, 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 you, it's, a, it's, got, it's a sort of market all its own, right? And it's cool. I mean, I do love these phrases you come up with. I cocaine. I mean, where'd you get that? That's beautiful. I just love that's a great phrase. I cocaine. That's, you know, it's nine tenths of blockbuster movies. That's what they are. I, I yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's great. It, it is. I mean, it's, that's, that will be, that's what everybody's waiting for at the, the sequel to Avatar, right? I mean, but not me though. Like, I don't think I don't, I must have a bad eye or something. I, I have no appetite for eye cocaine. Like I might have, I don't know what, it's not as if I'm better or worse. I can't tell you the last film I've seen just for. Oh, gee, that was an extravaganza. It sounds like that you have the ability to go and you see know, that. I, like, I, I grew up a huge comic book fan, but right. I noticed even despite that passion as a kid, like I know that it's lost on me now because I waited for the Avengers Endgame until I could just watch it at home. <laughs> and that, again, that's one of the only things that's worth, like I probably would still go to the next Star Wars film in the see, theater. I, I've never seen Star Wars. N not the original? Oh gosh! But I think so great. I think sports is probably my version of eye cocaine. You know, because it's pure spectacle. Like I could sit, I could, I could tell you the history of America by deconstructing 
the Super Bowl, as could many people. Like, it's all there. But, you know, like, I think it is interesting because of streaming that, you know, and I'm no expert on it. I'm just dipping a kind of like a, a late middle-aged toe into film. But, you know, because obviously a film now could be 54 minutes. Yeah. It could be a big hit on, on Netflix or it could be uh, seven hours. And that could, you know, like originally, as I'm sure you know, the films were two hours because that was the the length people could sit in a movie theater yep. without using the bathroom. And so the, it's still like an odd convention. The, the, the why is a book 300 pages? I don't know, because the binding won't break at that right. point. Or a film, two hours, because they thought you could sit that long. And so now there could be a very successful film. As we know, there could be, say, conceivably 37 minutes. Absolutely. It could be this blockbuster on, you know, Amazon or Netflix or Hulu or, or whatever. And so anyway, I just really enjoy the collaboration, the, I don't know, I, I'm weirdly rejuvenated by a series of indie doc films I'm working on. So, so the Lynch film, Marshawn Lynch, A History, how much of this is also just your Seattle, like, center of gravity, just being, I mean, obviously there's something about his own sort of seemingly pro I love how you, you work with the idea of silence as a form of protest and there's a political edge to him, but like how much of it was also just geographic? Like the, just, totally. yeah, like he's the hometown guy. Yeah. And now he's based in Oakland again. And I, I grew up in the Bay area. So there's this, you know, the two centers of gravity for me are clearly California, LA and San Francisco and Seattle now because I teach there. And so, you know, he has certain L.A. connections now because he does a lot of film and TV himself, commercials. He's in, in Westworld season three, which I haven't seen. Is that that good? It's awesome. Is it really? It's, it's one of these great, like... Talk about eye candy, I uh, mean, or eye cocaine. It, well, here's the thing. I, I haven't seen it. I love the original film with Yul Brenner. It's great. But it's one of those things that, like, like Battlestar Galactica, the remake, like, the culture was ready for AI and, and the intellectual existential questions in a way that it wasn't right. And also the serial drama, it's like you're saying with art, like now, like, I mean, my wife and I were talking about like how good a film has to be like a, a drama or a documentary doesn't fight with this. But like, if you're fighting, if you're doing some dramatic film with like broad appeal, it's got to compete against all these television shows, which are shot like a movie. I mean, the, I know. Film, the film quality is just as good They're with, the best stars and you get so much character development. So that's the thing. It's Westworld has taken this great little niche idea from the seventies. Which is what, what I don't it's, even... it's basically the idea that you go to this theme park and there are these like lifelike uh, robots that entertain you and have artificial intelligence. And, it, and it's a Western theme, the main park and, and you get to go and be a gunslinger and you can rape and pillage or you can, and they come uh, to life or something. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, they're safeguards so that they can't, they, they only have blanks and they can't do it's anything. It's a clever but then What happens when the, when the, when the artificial intelligence becomes self-conscious and, and, Whoa. and there's design battles between in the company about what the ultimate, Right. Project should be, and, and it's it's amazing. I it mean, sounds great. Oh, it's un, it's unbelievably. So it has sort of serious existential oh, bona fides. It's oh, not just oh, yeah. fucking around. No, and and again, the art form allows you to tease these bona fides out over a long period of time. So it's 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 much more like an epic, mm -hmm. which you can do in a film. But I mean, it, it's it's television is just. I, I think it's it's. Uh, just a different kind of art form that I think if you're, if you want to tell a story now, mm -hmm. television is, you know, is the sure. place to do it. Streaming kind of, of stuff. Of course. But, you know, in terms of Lynch that, you know, he's 
I was born and I was born in LA and raised in San Francisco. <clears throat> that my parents were unbelievably political. You know, they were <clears throat> involved with all kinds of civil rights and Black Panther and anti-war stuff. And so I was, you know, idea of our family vacation was, you know, going to, you know, a peace march in Berkeley. And, you know, like that was our that was our thing, you know. And then I, I always wonder what like uh, adolescent rebellion looks like there. for that do you, family. Do you start reading Barry Goldwater? Exactly. Or... <laughs> like, like there's a sense in which I know that my sister and I have talked about that. Like, what do you rebel when your parents are? They weren't exactly hippies, but they were radicals. And so there would be. You can go a couple of ways. And I think that I'm still figuring out that rebellion. I think this is the first, in a way, the first work of art I've done that my parents would have liked. I mean, perhaps War is Beautiful, they would like, if you know that book of mine about the critique of New York Times war photography, they would like that. But anyway, this film is deeply leftist. In why, why, why would they not like the rest of your art? Is it, is it too subjective or is it too... Interior, it, too internal. Too, inter too internal. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing. I mean, that my parents are no longer alive, but they were like... Do you think they'd see it as indulgent? I think so. Like sort of art for art's sake, or, you know, get over yourself and your problems or too interior. I, I'm just guessing there's a critique. It's part of what I think you're totally wrong is about where Caleb very much takes my parents' position that art is the servant of politics. That's what my parents thought. Whereas to me, you know, politics is the servant of art. You know, I'm the total finally, you know, we were talking earlier, you know. Yeah, you can't instrumentalize art like that. I, I mean, know, it, or, right. It's not art anymore. Exactly. I mean, it, 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 it's propaganda, yeah. Yeah. And so... I had a guest on the show who's... She's uh, one of your publicists' clients as well, and she's this... Can you say who it was? Uh, yeah, well, she's a short story writer. Oh, shoot, her name escapes me now. Uh, Karen Russell or something? Here? No, she's Chinese. She's oh, an emigre. Ian Lee or that? Yeah, and the, yeah I think it's... And she's a short story writer, and she said, you know... I didn't get into writing seriously until I left China. She's like, I always loved writing, but I thought I could do one of two things. I can write propaganda, basically be a pop propaganda, or I could write real art and get censored or worse. And, and, and I thought it's a very interesting. She was very clear cut about when you politicize art like that. And not that art's not political, of course. Sure. But when you, when you politicize it, it almost ceases to have its political edge, right? Right. Exactly. Well, that brings us to Lynch in a way because he's, you know, people say, oh, What's so subversive about him preferring not to speak to the media? But, you know, he is a, a Melvillian Bartleby-esque figure who, that when he says, I would prefer not to, you know, as Bartleby's, as Melville's Bartleby says, you know, in Bartleby the Scribner, or in a way as Billy Budd, who can't talk because of his stutter, or, you know, Ishmael is a renunciator in many ways, that, you know, not that, you know, that Lynch names his favorite text is Cat in the Hat. And, you know, Cat in the Hat is a, you know, we do a lot in the film with Cat in the Hat as, uh, <clears throat> you know, an interesting tricks for, trickster figure. I, when I was watching the film the second time, I screenshotted, I took a screenshot. No, this is the first, you have several sort of quotations of text, just white text on a black screen, intermittent intermittently placed throughout the film. I think the opener is he says no in thunder, but the devil himself cannot make him say yes. Herman Melville. He's talking about Hawthorne there, believe it or not. Interesting. That Melville's clearly talking about himself there. That is totally Melville. That before that we started talking on <clears throat> the podcast that we were talking about how Melville is the patron saint, isn't he, of contemporary 
what would you call it? You know, the death of God. You know, yeah. basically, the Melville. I, in many ways, you could argue, quote, got there first. Yeah. You know, before Dostoevsky, before he, um, apolo- I think in a letter to <laughs> Hawthorne, somebody. I forget who's he talking. No, who's the? I forget who the when word. he says, "I'm as pure as a lamb." That whole thing. Or? Just, yeah, I'm a polytheist. Like I'm a pig. I'm not post this. I'm I'm going back to this kind of paganism where you know that gods are. You know, some people find transcendence out in the woods. We call it Artemis. Some at sea. Some romantically, we call that Aphrodite. And he says, you know, the, call it what you will. And, and there's these. You can move in between worlds. You don't have to have one transcendent, mm-hmm. you know, focus right. like the onto. So yeah, I mean, I think he is in our sort of secular, pluralist age. He his his model of or, or his approach to transcendence seems to be able to honor real transcendence places without saying this is above that or that's above this. That's lovely. I mean, it's you know he, he solves the dialectic, doesn't he? In the Hegelian sense that he says. You know, the whole thesis, antithesis, synthesis that Hegel is so good at articulating, you know, as was Marx, you know, that, that Melville says, you know, there's God, there's no God. I'll solve it by saying there are many gods. That's yeah. a classic Hegelian move, yeah. you know. And that anyway, like, I don't know how this brings us to, to Marshall and Lynch, but in a way. That's the opener. Yeah. That's the, the opener is that thing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, basically in terms of, you know, that interesting thing, there are so many ways in which I felt like I was born to make this film. You know, I'm, you know, from the West Coast. I was born in L.A., raised in San Francisco. I lived in Seattle. And then also, you know, I'm a, that I grew up in a very, very political family. The film is suave, if that's the right word. It's sort of marinated in Oakland of the 60s and 70s, the Black Panthers, the Oakland Raiders, the Hells Angels. And also, I think this, Clint Eastwood. I love that quote where he says, you know, that with surprising eloquence, Eastwood, who went to the same high school that Marshawn Lynch did, says, you know, there's a, I don't know if you have the quote there, Scott, but, you know, he basically says, there's a mystery in not saying, you know, that Eastwood is that silent killer. And that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it, you it have was, the quote? I don't, but it was right before. This Asian woman who who's talking about the woman warrior, Maxine Hong Kingston, yeah, Maxine Hong Kingston, and she's talking about this he, broken, hero, yeah, the hero that comes and and and, and, and is taboo and defies convention and is mysterious, and then you, you then go right to Clint Eastwood and why people are fascinated with this new kind of strange hero he's playing. I thought the juxtaposition that was brilliant. Thank and you. And you do all these little different Oakland artists and Jack London and all this. It's Gertrude Stein all the way up. To Tupac and um, yeah, I mean, there's a real legacy there. It's not just of rebels or anti-authoritarians, but it's also people who figure out a way to be sub- subversive through symbolic means, whether uh, Black Panthers, Hell's Angels, Oakland Raiders, or even people like uh, even when Gertrude Stein says, you know, a rose is a rose is a rose. It's like, well, how is that useful? Well, it just sort of is because she's basically assaulting discourse. I'm not a huge Gertrude Stein fan. I don't know if, if you are, but that whatever Gertrude Stein did, who was a, an Oakland native, it, you know, you, her essential thing was an assault on accepted discourse. And that's what Marshawn Lynch is that, you know, would he use those exact terms? Not exactly, but he, he clearly, there's a clear method to his pseudo madness, which is, you know, when he refuses to participate in the agreed upon framework of an American corporate sports media who wants to insist on a banalized businessman's jargon the moment the game's over, the, 
when he's just saying that rhetoric, that grammar is not mine, I'm not going to allow you to impose your intellectual or, or anti-intellectual framework on my ecstatic and violent body. That is not happening. Like, I am not going to yield to that that language. I mean, it's a very powerful renunciation, I find. Yeah, and you think, I'm thinking about that in Hegel's phenomenology of, of spirit when he talks in the beginning about the master-slave dynamic and how who really has the power and and it's right. it seems like the master's totally free in this but yet the master requires the slave's dependence for his sense of self and freedom and and so there's this dialectic that and so when that's great when he doesn't participate well then what it's is great. The, what what is the power base that who am i then if i can't make you speak who am i then that's a beautiful connection i mean i can't help but think you know of didi and gogo and waiting for godot when there's that you know lucky and pozo you know where there's there's a master slave relationship in in godot and when when the slave so called refuses to be the slave the master's impotence clearly shows through the rage that fuels his his will to power is is manifest and in so many moments in the film there's this amazing moment where lebron james is being basically told to provide a soundbite to the reporter and lebron quite brilliantly refuses to provide that free soundbite says are you a smart guy and he just sort of pushes the question back on the interviewer and the 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 emptiness which is there, the the kind of this master slave. Let I me mean, again, LeBron James or Marshawn Lynch are nobody's slaves, but the ways in which this you know predominant American discourse just vanishes the moment that you step out of your accepted role. You know, is is quite powerful, I think. And I think that um, you know, people say, well, what's so great about his his rebellion? You know, he's not Jack Johnson, he's not Muhammad Ali, he's not Jackie Robinson. He's not Colin Kaepernick, but I think there's a potency and a poetry to his his silence. Like if you can't say that his renunciation has power, then my goodness, what then you're saying the only protest is marching in the streets. Like I think that has value for sure. But um I don't know, there's a real power to his silence. And I think part of the reason I glommed on to him. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but as a kid, I had a really bad stutter. I could hardly talk. And how did it stop? Well, I feel like I still have remnants of it here and there. You'll hear glimmers of it, but I would have never really. I, I had I, I. They said I had one as a child, which I don't really remember. But my aunt Gail, who I called her Aunt Gail, but she was my mom's cousin. She said what she did. She was a fourth grade teacher. She just took me out and listened. Wow! And it stopped that. Like once that's amazing. I, I had so much, I guess, inside that couldn't get out in the right. And I was, I guess, afraid that it wasn't going to get out or it wasn't going to be. At what age do you remember? I don't remember any of it. Wow. I don't remember any of it. So but when people said that you had a stutter, do you recall at what age they said? No. Very young, I, probably. I, it, it was. Yeah, right. It was. The whole thing was not memorable to me. Wow. The, it, it's existence or it's, it's disappearance. It's, amazing. Yeah. So you must have been very young. Yeah. But that's really beautiful that she actually just stopped and listened. She knew. She wow, knew. That's so beautiful. That's what I'm wondering, like, because I don't experience you. Uh, yeah, I just never have picked it up on that. But I mean, partly, you know, I, I mean, I think it's taken a lot of time, a lot of speech therapy, a lot of 
muscle memory, a lot of practice. There's all these things I do. But anyway, in terms of, I mean, this is not, and so, but anyway, I feel like from, you know, I, I really had quite a serious stutter through adolescence and into college. And part of the value of going to the Iowa Writers Workshop from 1978 to 82 was they have this fantastic Iowa speech and hearing clinic there. And I was there for almost five years. So I was at these two houses of language, the Iowa Writers Workshop, in which I was trying to write my first novel, and then I'd cross this Iowa bridge across the Iowa River, and I'd go and work on remedial language, which I'd try and say, you know, the cat jumped over the, the moon or whatever. And, you know, I, it was fascinating. I feel like that was this real origin myth for me of being both a writer and, in a way, a, a remedial speaker and learning to bring the language together. But in terms of it helped give me an, antennae for Marchand's language, the way in which there's, you know volume and velocity and violence to his silence because you know if a stutter you know again we're back to melville and billy budd you know there's so much emotional violence in his stutter you know bartleby is you know he would prefer not to there's something in melville i don't know if it's a metaphor of his you know he was obviously a very great writer who was barely read in his own lifetime and it's hard not to see some of those silences as metaphors for him not being heard but Anyway, because of my stutter, I really just was fell in love with the emotive power of Marshawn Lynch's self-muzzling, you might call it. I knew there was great poetry and eloquence there, and I still think there is. And but anyway, there's a moment where you capture where there the there's like the staccato repetition of questions, like "Well, this, what about this?" And he just says, "I'm grateful. I'm grateful." Mm-hmm. I'm grateful. And, you know, I thought, like, what is, what kills the excesses of modern capitalism? Gratitude, right? Because like, it's gratitude's opposite that feels lack, constant lack, right? You have to, you have to have this, create this sense of emptiness and lack. And the opposite of that is gratitude, right? And so even in that one word series of responses, there's this direct challenge to the sort of capitalist entanglement of web that he's surrounds him. I thought, wow, that's amazing. He is kind of an amazing performance artist that, you know, there's another part where he's, he's played in a game. He happened to have performed a particularly striking touchdown run. And they keep on asking him about it. And he said, thanks for asking. And the reporter seems a little baffled. It's in Phoenix and it's like an all white press corps. And he says, no, I'm asking, you know, how did you make, he goes, yes, I heard you. Thanks for asking. And the reporter just doesn't get it. He goes, well, could you answer the question? He goes, thank you for asking. I mean, it's this remarkable seesaw leverage there, isn't there? Because, you know, if you were to ask me a question, Scott, you know, the whole gig here, I mean, I enjoy talking to you because it's, you know, you were, it's just a rewarding conversation. But, that you know, if you were to ask me, so, David, how did you write the book or the movie? Like, thanks for asking. It's like, Fuck you. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. answer the yeah. fucking question. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, thanks for asking. Like, if, if we did the whole interview and you asked me 83 questions and I said, thanks for asking, it wouldn't air. Or yeah. it might, yeah. if I were terribly famous, you know, because like, <laughs> oh my God, you know, Kanye came on, on the, you know, or whoever it was and he refused to answer, you know, Scott's questions. But, you know, anyway, the point being <laughs> that it's, um, it's remarkable to, and he, the way that he does it is so amazing in the sense that he, it has a weird equipoise to it. It doesn't seem angry, but behind this mask of pseudo 
gratitude or thanks for asking, which is also kind of polite, or he'll say yes or no or maybe, or he'll say thanks for asking. He's saying like, thank, or the very opening of the film is him, an African-American pro athlete and an African-American interviewer asking him as a 15-year-old high school student, he's already a star athlete for Oakland Tech High School, and they're asking him, they're telling him to ask the athlete a question such as what's your exercise regimen or what college should I play for? How to be, and he just says, I ain't got no questions. I mean, that's the whole, I mean, that's just so beautiful. Like I ain't got no questions. Like I'm not going to be your boy. I'm not going to be your plaything. I'm not going to be your puppet. I'm not going to be your ventriloquized, you know, slave. I mean, it's, there's something in him that just leans back, you know, and, you know, we bring in Henry Rollins, the punk musician, and we bring in a whole galaxy. We bring in the, the Brando line, you know, of what are you rebelling against? What do you got? I mean, I've always loved that line. But like, I, I, I don't know if you're a, I, I wonder if you struggle with the movie at all, because I don't know if you're a sports guy at all. I imagine you might not be. I mean, I, I grew up playing sports very mediocrely uh and i i sort of like i so i followed sports intensely up until like college and then i if i wasn't playing it i followed it less like i started loving golf and i started watching it but so i like but i i flew in and out of, right. of, of right. watching sports like it, it depends in philadelphia when anybody's you know whatever it's a big sport like yeah. like when the eagles won did you did you go to like a Super Bowl party to watch that game or anything I, a couple did, of years ago. I, I did, what did I do? I, I don't think I went to a party to watch the game. I I did put up a prayer request on Facebook. I said, pray that we win because Center City is going to get destroyed either way. And I hope people are happy when they do it. Cause, right. Because <laughs> it's like amazing. I mean, I I was on the streets when the in 2008, right, when the Phillies won. And, and that, the, the Phillies won. And then Obama was elected the next month. I mean, the Philly streets were like, it was like, uh, and those things I th- I find exciting. I mean, right. so it's like, but now, but I found, but I don't think you need like you didn't you don't need to be like no. I, I'm not like I I'm not somebody who like like I I I I like watching sports at a bar occasionally, you know, just when I'm zoning out. But I one of the things that I find this is interesting because this is like the third time I've sort of intentionally engaged your work, like sort of, and, and it was the most religious response I had. Uh, wow. It, and the thing that I kept thinking about were the words of Jesus over and over again, be in the world and not of it, which is, of course, the ultimate challenge. Right? And most of it, so much of that. That's a Jesus. Because oh, I, yeah. I always think of it as deeply Buddhist. Yeah. The Salinger quotes a lot in my Jesus Salinger tells, book. Jesus tells us to be, in the, world, to be but in the world, but not of it, which you think wow. of like the contemporary political conservative Evangelicals, they're of the world, but not in it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so when I was Be thinking, in the world, but, but not, not of it. it. It's so, so beautiful. So what I thought was like, I'm watching. God, I wish Marshall we had Lynch. used that. That is so the movie. And, and I'm looking at that he is that, embodying that, because he's in this capitalist, God, gladiatorial totally. thing and not of it. I mean, he's trying his best. And he's cashing checks. Like and cashing yeah. checks. He's not, he's not a, uh, a Marxist saying, I'm not going to, I'm going to exist at a commune. And no. Never, no. He's really in this system and yet trying not to be substantially of the system. And, and that to me is the challenge, right? I mean, yeah. in, in late- it's easy to be, you know, in a way, if you're JD Salinger and you made a hundred million dollars as a writer and you retreat to Cornish for Vermont and you're not of the world, like, you know, if you bought yourself out of it, 
Or on the other hand, if you're, you know, a stockbroker and you're trying to buy, you know, a new, a new Maserati like that, those are the two extremes and those are just sort of easy, sort of. And then like, but to be in the world, but not of it is because, you know, the, the one summary that we have of the film is, uh, I'm sorry, I feel like I sort of no, interrupted. No, no, but, no, you didn't at all. But, um, you know, we, you know, you know, in a capitalist racist society, Marchand, you know, in, you know, he, that Marchand tries to be true to himself in a capitalist racist society that wants to exploit him and that he wants to both exploit and oppose. There's where it gets interesting. Cause I think if he just wanted to oppose it, and that would be, say, Colin Kaepernick, who, you know, who's an admirable protester, I think, who just said, you know, I'm out for a variety of reasons. Or someone who just, you know, is, say, actively resisting the culture. But he, that Marchand is recently retired. So he's, you know, but he's still a businessman, you know, apparently quite a savvy businessman. But um, that space is a really interesting one. It's not one that, you know, like, I'm not, you know, I'm just like a middle class person. I don't, but... I'm trying to be in the world, but and not of it. That's boy, that is a damn good summary. I mean, he's not sort of Jesus-like in the conventional sense that maybe evangelicals might understand it, but in a deeply spiritual sense, to be in the world but not of it. I can't think of a, a more useful summary than that of, of Lynch's ethos. I mean, um, and it's so complicated right? because that is such a. I mean, I mean, bread and circuses, right? I mean football especially it, 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 this is our gladiatorial game you know it, it, you think about when somebody like mike ditka says i wouldn't let my kid play football you know like because of how abusive it is to the body and yet this uh in the midst of that to try to you know to really be in it not of it you know to to really be a transformative agent even in a system that is seemingly uh, incorrigible, right? <laughs> I mean, it's very intuitive of you because I'm, you know, I'm showing the film tonight. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't know when this will air, you know, maybe two, two or three or four weeks or something. Down nah, the road. this will probably air this week. Oh, good. Yeah. But, you know, anyway, you know, I'm going to show it at School of Visual Arts and, um, and Michael Smith of ESPN and I are planning to talk about the movie afterward. And he and I were in Oakland when we showed the film because he's, Michael likes the movie, and um, he and I did a little discussion of the film in Oakland a few weeks ago, and uh, and Marshawn came afterward to this. He, he didn't attend the screening. He had seen the film. Did you know him before you made the film? Did you meet no. him? No. So he did not. So he came. Afterward. Wow. He just came up to me, and we talked, and Marshawn and I are going, Michael Smith and I are going to talk tonight about what, what was that like? What? How did? How was that for him to come up to you? I mean, what were you feeling at that? Well, I can't. I mean, I, I don't mean to be too much of a tease, but I have to talk about it tonight. Like okay. we have a little bit of a a reveal. Sure. So I. But anyway, the point. The point I will say is that you are very intuitive in a sense that when you just said he's in the world, but not of it. That was exactly the the way that he stood. The way that we converse it was a very you know he was extremely generous and extremely funny and very appreciative and he couldn't have been more uh positive in his his interactions with me but it was it was, it was certainly complicated but anyway that was exactly the way that he stood you know we spoke for about 10 minutes and it was great but he was totally in this world 
but not of it. He just seemed, you know, there was an aura around him that's remarkable. He's right there. He's wearing, you know, gray and black sweat, sweat suit and he's got his dreads, but he's not really of it. I mean, it was really, I mean, that's just so on, but I, I, I don't mean to be too, but anyway, I just have all these things that tonight that we're planning to talk, you know, at greater length about what we said. There was nothing particularly revelatory, but other than that we spoke and it was a positive, a positive interaction. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You you do have the Bill Cosby clips in the film, which I was fascinated by, the, and especially Cosby talking about inequalities for black actors. A, a young Bill Cosby. Very young, uh, yeah. Uh, sort of, this is when he's... What was the show he was on with the, where he was the buddy spy? I spy, it called? I, I spy. spy? Yeah, I, I spy. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is the I spy generation, Bill Cosby. Like, why? I why mean, include? Because a clip of Bill Cosby now. I mean, I remember... Recently, Jerry Seinfeld was on Stephen Colbert, and they brought up Cosby and "Can You Still Laugh at It?" and it was arrest. It was amazing. It just—I bet they took different approaches. They, well, it was interesting because Jerry said he can still watch it, and then he comes back after the break. He's like, "I was thinking about it." You're right. Maybe I can't watch it. And then Jerry Seinfeld goes, "What a this. chicken!" I mean, my God, what a. Well, then he goes into this thing. See, why can't people do that on cable TV? See, I just said I was wrong. Why can't we do it? <laughs> I mean, he and Colbert had this amazing conversation. Like, but I thought just, I mean, using Bill Cosby in a documentary film about Marshall Lynch, like that's not an accident. Like I'm no. thinking twice. I thought, oh boy, I got to, <laughs> can we talk? I mean, why? So t- tell me what you're thinking. And we have Louis C.K. in it too. Yeah. A little bit after that. And you know, that we, that we debated it. You know, I work with a whole galaxy of good people. James Nugent was, the key film editor on it and he was fantastic and we debated it over and over again that we had it in that we had it out we had it in that we had it out and i finally you know as the director and the producer of it you know i just finally said you know 
I like the, the disturbance it creates. And that, you know, I showed the movie last night and there was at least a little in New York and I, there was at least one person who said, I get it out of there, you know, and, but you know, that we've heard that, you know, and some people said, I, I'm okay with it, but basically you're right. It was calculated. And the way, I don't know if it works partly is that I really do like the clip. He says he has a couple of good clips. Does Cosby one that there's a black man in your sugar bowl, which is kind of an amazing line. He points out how much of the sugar trade was funded and fueled by slavery. Yeah, you you have a whole thing, and it's this great riff all the way to Skittles, which Marshall yeah. Lynch is a Skittle, and 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 it seems like he's aware of the irony of all this. Lynch, Marshawn, yeah. I think so. Yeah, it's com- yeah. it's part of it's probably if there is any part of the film that has a little, you know, slightly ambivalent take on Lynch, it's the whole sugar sequence. Which, you know, he's if I were in his position, I would do the same thing. You know, he's cashing out. Here's a million dollars to do a Pepsi commercial. You you know, you kind of be a silly role in it. Go for it. You know, I think he's controlling the discourse. Like, you pay me some money, I'll play a uh, antic role in the in the commercial, I'll control it fine, but I'm not going to provide, you know, a free soundbite to you in the locker room. But yeah, the whole Skittles thing, I think he is aware of it. But um, Cosby, what was my thinking? The way I thought, and I, I might be overthinking it, but basically, you know, in the broad American discourse, if you just ask someone in, you know, Topeka, Kansas, you know, who is Marshawn Lynch? And, you know, I don't know how one finds some average person, but, you know, they might have, at least some people would, you know, slightly pejorative take on him as a renunciator or as, quote, thug or, you know, whatever. I'm not sure what, but, you know, I mean, there is, he's not adored in the culture. I mean, he's adored in some circles and he's, you know, he's a slightly polarizing figure is the point I would make. So anyway, the idea is that Marshawn Lynch is an, the whole point of the movie is to show how deeply three-dimensional he is as a person that anyone properly understood is an incredibly complex human being. And so in a way, because you chose to include the stuff about the hit and run stuff yeah, and, and the, he's no saint, right, you know, right. and he's, you know, he's, uh, you know, and, and isn't this just like Hegel teaches us, right? The minute we don't allow, if dialectic is about like, the truth isn't in resolving contradict. It's the truth is tensions, contradictions, embodying so contradictions. The moment we don't allow somebody to have contradictions, we've dehumanized them. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It, you know, it's it's sort of like you. You know, I think we even talked about this last time. Like the, it's interesting that the Trump sort of immigration discourse the the. The Mexican immigrant, he's Speedy Gonzalez, and he's going to outwork the the domestic worker, but also he's lazy and shiftless. And and the sort of the, the rationalist approach would be, well, it can't both be true. And I think the Hegelian approach, well, yeah, that's both true. We're all both industrious and shiftless. We're all both like all of us have that in us. All people groups have that in them. And the moment a group or an individual or you know somebody is not allowed to be contradiction, and, and, and right, that they're an object, not a subject. That's, those are great connections, and it's part of the sort of weird secret connections in a strange way of, between this film and my Trump book. You couldn't imagine two more opposite figures in many ways, but in certain strange ways, both Trump with his black magic performance art and Lynch with his sort of performative chops, they both, to me, for very different 
means and purposes are assaulting and undermining and deconstructing discourse that, you know, Trump in a way embodies contradictions in rather clever ways that you just said. He, he throws out these sort of word salads that are purposely contradictory and he sort of lets the contradiction stand. But I mean, just to swing back briefly to Cosby that, you know, basically I wanted those contradictions to stand on the screen. So some people are, are pushed out of their seat and but it's like you know bill cosby all those things stand he was at one point you know he was at one point sort of thought to be the embodiment of cool you know he's wearing this leather jacket and that thing and he's really eloquent in his announcement and he, and he makes a, a crucial point you know the film all these films were made by white directors with white writers for a white audience and then it's meant to be a critique of our film you know it's a mainly white group of people who made the film we you know Danny Glover is the executive producer and gave us crucial feedback but you know so to me I'm like okay is this film guilty of the very thing Cosby you know is bringing up and that we wanted those and then after that, that we go directly to a white filmmaker in Paris who's following in this rather voyeuristic way a black actor through the streets of Paris. And then the white filmmaker is sort of turning and looking at me filming him. But um, so anyway, we wanted to bring in Louis C.K. We brought in even Clint Eastwood, bringing in Clint Eastwood as part of the Oakland resistance is a little like what? But yeah, like exactly let those contradictions stand, embody those contradictions. You know, in no way does that mitigate, say, my difference of political opinion with Clint Eastwood or my sense that Bill Cosby has committed obviously very real crimes or that Louis C.K. committed, you know, lesser transgressions, but that all those things stand and they might have made some good points. You know, who among us is... Saintly, certainly not me. I mean, that may get us to Chesterton later, that quote of Chesterton, which I always quote, you know, Chesterton was asked, you know, what's wrong with the world? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. That's that. I mean, God, that, was, so that was in response to a essay competition for like the London Times. Like it, it, the, 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 I think it was one of the London papers. It was submit an essay, what's wrong with the world? His his submission was, I am Gilbert Jean Chesterton. <laughs> That's like grateful. Grateful. Exactly. <laughs> I Thanks for telling me that context. I hadn't heard that context. The, the other thing in the I film, wonder if that, that won the contest. It should have. I'm sure it didn't, but it that, should, yeah. that is so... I mean, he's, I mean, that's a fascinating connection between self-critique, self-ownership, and brevity. Because when you or have something as compressed and concise and in a way anti-verbal as that, it pushes you toward candor and it pushes you toward aphorism. It pushes you toward eloquence and sometimes it pushes you toward acidity. It pushes you toward harshness, you know, and that's an amazing connection. I am. Fuck you. you know? <laughs> How dare you not question your own fallenness you must question your own fallenness you know the, the other thing that, that had this religious resonance with me in the film is i i think that I, i've been deeply shaped in the way i read the gospels by a guy named robert farr capon who actually is an episcopal priest and he's dead now but he, he used to be a film and uh, or i'm sorry a food and drink uh 
writer for the New York Times in his spare time while he was, he was on some of his time out in Long Island and stuff. And he, he says, you know, that after like Jesus feeds the multitudes, he notices this change in his teaching where everything he thinks is about death and his death and death and resurrection. It's like, I, I, I can't even let them think I'm a normal kind of would be Messiah figure. I've got, and, and he thinks that the whole way of salvation is death because only then can, is there resurrection. And, and, and I see Marshawn Lynch as this sort of like, I'll receive this death, right? I'll die to this kind of gladiatorial game, but actually you don't understand in dying to you, you find me, you, this, you, that you, you, you think that you're, that you're, but I, you can't kill me because I'm dying to it already. And so that in dying, I can be resurrected, right? I'm not, you know, it's, the more I hold on with a closed fist to the stuff, the more control you have, the more I let it go, I, I die to rise again to it. And I, I think that it was salvific to me. It's, it's, it was a metaphor for like, okay, this is, this is, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're gaining your life by losing it. Totally. And I, he looks alive, right? Those eyes are alive. He's, you're not going to take the life out of those eyes. It's remarkable. And the bit players around him don't look alive. Like the, right. the, 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 the people playing the game, the right. sort of, okay, here's the media circus. The here's the thing. You know, like and, and, Russell and, Wilson, we use as an antagonist because he's so accommodating. And there's a flatness. I mean, he's a bit of the villain of the movie because he's so, uh, you know, accommodating and genuflect of, of the, the, um, of the discourse and he so just wants to cash out by telling the culture what it wants to hear. I mean, I just love those connections you are making where, I mean, we even have this whole thing. I don't know if that's what helped you get there where he does this thing and rise that we have a couple of moments where Lynch is actually from a beacon plumbing commercial where he goes, you know, we're going to get this and rise. And yeah. we do that two or three times in the film and there is something very transcendental about him. And there, there's this, this great passage in the film where an interviewer is asking him, uh, what would you tell the youth? And he says, become a doctor. Don't do what I did. It hurts. hurts. Oh, yeah. And then we go right to CTE and, you know, Tony Dorsett and a galaxy of other players who have quite serious head injuries. And Lynch is, you know, 10 steps ahead of everyone else. You know, he just... I just, I do like what you say a lot. At first, I was curious where you were going with it about death and resurrection, but I think the film plays with that quite a lot. And I guess I, in a way, I tack it to the way that we track silence, namely Lynch's silence was born and made and framed in Oakland. It was deepened in Buffalo where he felt cartoonized and caricatured and stigmatized by the kind of all-American press. It went viral in Seattle through his fame, the Seahawks being a prominent team. Then it got politicized through Trump and Kaepernick. And then the resurrection, I would argue, is sort of he's handed on as legacy to the next generation of black athletes, this sort of anti-strategy strategy. I mean, there's a part of the film which I like are the last sort of five minutes kind of outtakes in which a series of athletes are doing, including some white coaches, you know, Belichick and Jason Garrett, Greg Popovich, but also some younger black athletes like Russell Westbrook, Aaron, Arian Foster, LeBron James, who's about Marshawn's age or even older, you know, who 
are adopting a Marshanian strategy of being in this world, but not of it, of taking the discourse, the framework, the rhetoric and grammar of imposed uh, corporate banality and just saying, I'm not entering that particular language. And in, in resisting, to me, they're doing something considerably more than just saying, oh, gee, I'd rather not talk to you. They're saying, can we please... You know, like, I insist upon ownership of my own body and of my own language. And, you know, there's real power there. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to be an obj- a subject, not an object. And, and yet, also, I want to make a living. So, I, I mean, I, I could go on a sort of Marxist commune or something. But and I, that's but, not but, me but, either. But I want to make a living, and yet, in it, I want to be a subject exactly and 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 shape the discourse not just be shaped by it precisely and there's you know there's there is this among my favorite passages in the film is when we do this thing where i interviewed a friend of mine alan grant a former nfl player who's also an author and he talks about he's african-american he played at stanford he played in the nfl he worked for espn and but he talks about how he goes to the zoo and looks at a silverback. Ah, uh, that's a great, yeah. It's, oh, it's so a unnerving. Oh, yeah. And then we we juxtapose that very, you know, shot by shot with Marshawn Lynch at a, uh, a press conference during Super Bowl 49 with these um, reflecting sunglasses where he is looking back out at the, the press gathering, 95% of whom are white. And, you know, that Alan Grant is saying when, you know, he's looking at, at the silverback and he's, the silverback is looking at him and he goes, and then Alan kind of, you know, kind of dangerously sort of says, you know, that's the way it feels if you're, uh, you know, uh, a large, athletic, dark-skinned black man in this culture. I mean, you know, he was a professional athlete, you know, that all these fans are looking at you, but what they don't realize is that I'm looking back at them and that we can hear and we can listen and that we are subjects that we're not objects and i know that's the whole movie in that juxtaposition to me is that's that's some you know those 60 seconds or so i just that's the movie for me and you know even that some people urged us to take out of the oh, movie that was, but uh, that's the movie because i mean alan's saying it and it's like he it's unnerving and that's you know this whole sort of subject object relationship but that's that's the movie you this film like your books, I mean, it, it, you know, there's no narrator, you know, there's no, it, it, it requires a, an active subject in, in engaging it. I mean, you have, right. you have to, and I found it incredibly engaging and, and like the rest of your work, I, I engage, I found, uh, it demands an act of, if, if you want to tune out to, you know, the Trump book or trouble with men, like, I'm not going to hold your hand and give you, I'm sorry. No, yeah, because if you t- tune out, you're not going to read it. I mean, you, just read it, as Lynch says. Yeah, yeah. You, you have to be present to it. And often, I had this experience with the film, like I've had with your other work I've read. I felt much more present to myself for the act because I had to, because I had to navigate my way through the film. Uh, and it's put together masterfully, but, Dang. but again, you, you have to be present to it to, to feel the arc, like so much of your writing. And I mean, right. so is that, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I see it, that the continuity with you as an artist seems to transcend art forms. 
I know. Well, thank. I mean, I think I was about to ask you as someone, you know, who's been very generous in your engagement with my work that you, you know, you really engage with it. And, you know, you've probably read, I don't know, maybe four or five of my books by now, like Trump, Trouble with Mad. I think I've this, only read, I've only just read, those, just those I've two. only read two or three. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But anyway, you, you really engage with them. And I was sort of curious to what degree the, the Lynch film felt congruent and it sounds like it feels oh, yeah, totally yeah, congruent. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like it's it, not yeah. like suddenly like I was this poetic writer and suddenly I wrote a rom-com, uh, a rom-com and I wrote, you know, it stars, you know, Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston. I'm like, what? Who's this? What's this commercial move that James, that, that David Shields was making? I was like, no, it's like totally, it just feels like one more of my projects, you know, you know, yeah, it's very total, much, very much you know, so. it's very much collage like and, um, you know, this whole absence of an overarching narrator that we always, that we had a few mantras that we put up in our, our film editing room, which is just my basement office, you know, is basically, you know, Ken Burns is not the model, you know, it, that to make it never feel like that you're watching TV. And three, make the movie feel like a Marshawn Lynch run. You know, stutter steps and reversals and spins and surprise and unpredictability and velocity and violence and energy, energy, energy. And also that we, that we wanted a film that felt congruent spiritually with Lynch. So it's, you know, it has kind of, to me, kind of a DIY punk aesthetic. It feels like, you know, it's built out of spare computer parts. And also, frankly, necessity is the mother of invention that, you know, that we approached Lynch and he said, I won't participate, but I won't impede. Second of all, you know, it took us four years to find all these clips and remix them. And we had a legal requirement that, you know, you could only pull brief clips, you know, according to fair use and transformation, and you have to be making an overt commentary. And so the film had to have all this speed. And the whole film is a, a love song to Marshawn Lynch's silence as a form of eloquence. The last thing I wanted the film to be is having some mission control. Can you imagine the disaster, a mission control narrator in which some white guy narrator saying, and so Marshawn was traded to Buffalo, you know, I mean, can you imagine that, you know, that would be just, that would have been, I mean, you could do it for comic effect and we do it occasionally in which we have an ESPN guy from an old clip saying blah, blah, blah. But you know, what's interesting about it too is the way the collage nature of the film actually simulates or recreates the way we experience someone like Lynch today. It's all through, it, it is through media. It's through right. cable news clips, ESPN, network TV. Like it, this is how we experience people like this. So, I mean, it, right. it, it phenomenologically, it gets close to how we've engaged someone like this. I know what you mean. Do we know him? Do I even as the filmmaker know him? Sort of, sort of not, you know? And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, I think, how did I describe it to the fellow at, the New York Daily News, I said, you know, it's like somebody's Twitter feed on speed. You know, it's a little bit of a like, but, you know, again, it's like with all of my collage projects, Trump, Trouble with Men, Lynch, you know, I'll be damned if I'm going to agree with somebody who says, oh, I see, you've just gathered a bunch of stuff that you've thrown them against the wall and hope something sticks. Like, au contraire, you know, that as I, you know, I like to say ad infinitum, you know, collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled, you know, like collage is an evolution beyond narrative. I mean, it's harder to make, I would argue, this kind of book or film 
than it is to just have, you know, a rather linear narrative and do, you know, <clears throat> a standard sports doc or bio doc or <clears throat> a straight ahead book on Trump or a straight ahead memoir on your marriage. I mean, for who knows what reason, it's not the way my mind thinks. Yeah, and one of the reasons Plato used dialogues, because yeah, I guess it's in the Phaedrus, right? It's where he has the critique of writing, but ironically, it's in a written dialogue. But I mean, one of the reasons he... But it wasn't written. I mean, it was... Yeah, it's a written for us. Right, but yeah. yeah. But one of the reasons <laughs> Plato uses dialogue is he thinks that it's more dynamic. That exactly. That, it's the dialectic that, again. Right, yeah. that, you, that, that once you get out of that dialogical thing, it gets more staid, it gets sure. more fixed. And so, he was obsessed with that, yeah. Yeah, and so he thinks that you can create this more dynamic reality because you, you're not sure which character you are, who you're identifying with, or who's Precisely. the hero, villain. You know, and so that collage has that invitation, right? I mean, sure. it kind of... It, 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 you, it's 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 easier to get lost in it if you engage it. Totally I mean, lost in the best sense. Like yeah, I, I've lost. Where in, am I? Right. And as you were saying earlier, like you said something like I'm. I feel more present to myself. Is exactly the thing I want these works to do. I mean, there's a couple of places I'd love to go with that. One is you know Bakhtin's whole sense of of what he liked about novels was that they are polyphonic, but that you know I would argue collages even more so that way but also too shoot there was one other point i was going to make that that um shoot about present anyway i've lost my train of thought for a second but basically um shoot tell me what you just said scott and it'll trigger something about oh that you felt getting lost in in, in, in right yeah it's a more it's a more dynamic kind of form right I think the place I wanted to go with that is, I guess I wanted to go to, again, my favorite moments in the film are sort of when Lynch creates a reverberation in a, di- in a dynamic between himself and the interviewer. So that, you know, there's this usual, unbelievably flattened discourse between the, the journalist and the athlete. You know, okay, how does it feel to win the big game? It felt great. You know, do you have to win next week to stay in the playoff race? Y- yes, we do. Um, how's the team getting along? We all are, are, we're all a band of brothers, you know, and the, there's a kind of flatness to the entire discourse. And what Lynch does. And, and then we, as the viewer, when we were watching that as a sports fan. That we numb out. It, it, yeah, right. Okay. All is well in the world. Okay, exactly. This is, this is and that's crucial. Right, it's right, crucial. Right, yeah. And that basically what Lynch does so powerfully, the way that for me that. that I, I just heard that Michael Murphy, the political consultant say in this thing with Axelrod, they do this podcast. He said, you know, this, I forget what the event was, but it reminds me of uh, the story about a guy who comes to the bar. Uh, he's a wrestling promoter and they say, how'd it go? He said, how'd it go? I said, terrible. A real fight broke out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's beautiful. That's a great line. I mean, it plays a little bit on the whole thing. You know, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out, but, um, <laughs> which is built is big in Philly, you know, but, um, so he, but, just, you know, he, just, he disrupts the whole. Exactly. And in that way, I think he's trying to create, I mean, I think that realness is a real thing for him. He wants to be authentic to himself and he wants you to be authentic to yourself. I mean, I, a big move I always make is to paraphrase this thing that David Foster Wallace said. He was asked by Laura Miller, 25 years ago in Salon, you know, what's so great about literature? And he said, um, I'm not actually a huge Wallace fan. I, I like Wallace's essays a lot. The genuflection to Wallace's fiction, I've never 
quite <laughs> cotton on, but that's for obvious reasons. But anyway, the wall said so beautifully um, that we're existentially alone on the planet. You can't know what I'm thinking and feeling, and I can't know what you're thinking and feeling. The literature at its best is a, a bridge built across the abyss of human loneliness. I mean, that is so beautiful to me and so complete. That is exactly what I think the point of art is. But it's a very sturdy bridge. It's not, first of all, it's not, it doesn't solve anything exactly. It's not like, oh, gee, if you read my book, suddenly human loneliness is assuaged. But what Lynch is doing to me, he's saying, you know, that I'm alone, I'm entrapped in, in Marshawn Lynch, that you're some, you know, white reporter from Phoenix, Arizona. And like, that we are just talking across this immense vast of human loneliness. And I'm going to show it to you right now because I'm going to say I'm thankful. Or is, is it grateful or thankful? Grateful. It's grateful. He's like, I'm grateful. And in that way, this space opens up. It's a violent space, but it's also a real space. You know, it's a real space. He's saying, like, be real to me right now. Can you hang with this comedy, with this violence, with this performance art? If you can bring something to me, great. If not, fuck you. And that. It's so eloquent to me, rather than, you know, that we use Russell Wilson as like, he's like, you know, he's Mr. Goody Two-Shoes in the movie. I don't know who the equivalent is in Philly, like who would be, not that your listeners are necessarily Philly-based. I don't know. I think, I mean, but, you know, I'm trying Nick, to get someone. I mean, that, Nick Foles is pretty popular. But is, but he, is he like super squeaky clean in that way? Like, he's does religious. He, does he's he, kind of, does he's, he? He's kind of. Although, although there's this myth that he's, oh, there's this rumor that he's amazingly well endowed. So it's like big dick Nick. <laughs> oh, is this, is <laughs> that, is that's got out in the street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big so dick Nick is so his it, thing. So it's even better. He's religious and he's, there you he's, go. He's now sick. we're the, the Hegelian contradiction. Yeah. That's hilarious. That's, that's, see, that's beautiful. Like human beings always have to figure out a way to squeeze out something real like he's really religious but we've got to get that contradiction going and it's like that's that's beautiful to me you know it's like yeah but still there's reality there you know like it's like crucial that obama smokes you know like what's the little very minor vice that obama has okay he smokes like okay big deal you know but it's like to me that's this crucial thing like he's not there's something there that this smells of the human do you know what I mean? Yeah. Of the fallen, you know? Yeah. So in conclusion, I just want to say something that is dawning on me. I think that like the way if, if your parents were alive and I was talking to them about your work, I think the way I would explain how it's political, I, I think I would say to them something like this invitation to the I thou-ness, right? That when you blow up the discourse like this, when, you, when you're present to yourself, you're usually going to question uh, – shitty political arrangement you're closer to questioning why why are we why do we have these arrangements that are so dehumanizing and so uh objectifying and so you know i i it it, it or i it instead of i thou and i think that that it, i mean that's where your art is deeply political because it invites the subject to engage it so personally and that's mm-hmm. where like real that's real politics. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Scott. That's really beautiful. I can't build on that, but that I thou, that's everything. I agree with you. That's my real politics. That's that's really nice. It comes through in the film. Thanks for Thank you. making it and for spending some time talking to me about it. Thanks a million. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. 
They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. Do check out his film, Marshawn Lynch, A History. You will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.